Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, and this is a weekly podcast with people you want to hear, and in this case, I think someone, maybe some of you perhaps need to hear. Our guest is Molly Kalahada, and she is an environmental activist, founder of Systemic Impact Strategies, which advises corporations, foundations, nonprofits via psychology and neuroscience research, and what they're all about is harnessing and trying to achieve systemic change in the climate movement. She served as a White House climate advisor in the Obama administration, helped implement President Obama's energy agenda and climate action change. She was on Google's energy team where she helped to launch the 24-7 Energy Compact in partnership with the United Nations, dedicated to decarbonizing electric grids globally. And she's also a fellow with the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, a member and residence of Sea Change, and a dedicated and accomplished mountain climber who's been courageously open about personal struggles with mental illness. Welcome, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. And we are delighted to have you here. I want to lead, as you have said on a number of occasions, lead with hope here. And uh, the reason I'm doing that, the thing that Emily Dickinson said, that thing with feathers, uh, why you feel hopeful about climate change, particularly when there are so many people who don't feel hopeful about it or are downright antipathetic to even the idea of hopeful of, of being hopeful about climate change. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. So there are a few reasons I feel this and then there are reasons why I think it's effective. Um, and so there's actually this experience I had years ago when I was sitting at my desk at the White House in 2015. And we were reflecting on a lot of the challenges we were facing with Congress in order to get, you know, really big climate action done. And I started kind of thinking through this process of systemic change where you know that you can't solve the climate crisis without systemic change, right? You can't get systemic change without policy. That's what we were working on. You can't get policy without electeds. That's the challenge we were facing. You can't get elected until you get the public on board. And the realization I had that I hadn't considered was you can't expect to have the public on board until they feel something. And that last part, that people need to feel something in order to act, that was key. And so I started thinking through a, a lot of the ideas behind this, that sort of by transitive property, policy can come down to a human emotion. And that blew my mind. I felt really dumb because I hadn't really considered the fact that how people feel in their everyday lives could impact what we're able to do in the halls of the White House. That's where so, your neuroscience comes in, doesn't it? That is. So I, I actually, yeah. exactly. I started looking into psychology research, which is kind of a weird thing to be doing in the policy space, but I thought there's actually probably a lot we should harness here. And one thing was very clear, which is that the research shows uh, shame, guilt, and doom and gloom do not motivate people. They're actually antithetical to human motivation. They make people physically retract. They move their body smaller and they have a freeze response. It's a paralyzing response related to trauma. And that's been a sort of a tactic for a long time by many who have been leading the way, make you feel bad and make you feel guilty. Yeah. Exactly. And it's effective in those ways. If you want to demotivate people, if you want to get them, for example, to not vote, to stay home, then that's a very effective strategy. But on climate, we need people to act. We need them to stand up. And so what the research also showed, which was really fascinating, was that hope didn't just feel good. It's effective. But it's you have a motivating people. Excuse me. The, the efficacy of hope for you is tied to framing. Uh, my friend George Lakoff has written a lot about this, and I know he's been a big influence on you. How do you frame something so that it will make people feel that emotion or feel stirred in a way that you're talking about? 
do you frame it in terms of progeny and future generations, or do you frame it in terms of just what they need to know in terms of knowledge? Yeah, so one of the ways we can really effectively reframe climate is in terms of public health. And we did all this message testing at the White House, and we actually found that the most effective way to reach people was not by talking about climate-related disasters, not by talking about the environment, polar bears, glaciers, not even by talking about the economy at scale. It was about, about talking about childhood asthma rates. And so relating climate change to clean air and clean water, which are pertinent to people's everyday health, that was where we were seeing a lot of impact. And so kind of taking wherever the climate argument or debate is and sticking it into the realm of public health, which, as you mentioned, George Lakoff, he is uh, like the grandfather of all of this work and reframing. That's a really effective way to reach people where they are, regardless of their political beliefs. And you want to get people to vote. You want to get them to be activists and you want to get them to really stand in line with and really stand for what you stand for. Um, you've got a lot of apathetic people out there, though, that can't be stirred, don't you? Yeah, and part of that, I think, is like the environmental movement having kind of a reckoning of realizing that it's not their fault that they haven't cared. We have failed to reach them. And I think this idea of kind of blaming everyday people for the fact that they have a lot of stuff going on and a lot of folks are in survival mode, given the levels of income inequality we have in America, that we really need to think about how do we reach people where they are by talking about clean air, clean water, cutting the childhood asthma rate, the cancer rate, the rate of lung disease, the hospitalization rate, the rate of missed school days, missed work days. That's a much more effective way to talk about climate change in a way everyday people can relate to and care about than it is by talking about things happening thousands of thousands of miles away in the Arctic, which most people don't have the luxury of thinking about. Well, the particular bent now to some extent has been to recognize the public health disadvantages and the public health threats and to make people more aware of what's going on in communities of color. And if they have sensitivity to that, that can certainly rally them and so forth. There's always been this, uh, it's not an indictment really, but charge that the environmental movement and those in favor of climate change action are elitist. They're from the creme de la creme of society, or they're the wealthier people and so forth. What do you say about that? Yeah, I mean, there's a history of non-inclusivity and, and blatant racism yes, there in the is. Yeah. movement that we have to be aware of, right? And so I think the climate movement's made a really stringent effort from the beginning in order to be inclusive from the start. And one of the ways we're able to do that is, again, by focusing on and framing climate change as an issue in terms of public health and focusing on environmental justice. And, you know, as you mentioned, communities of color who are significantly likelier to have to live near power plants, highways, toxic waste sites, you know, the list goes on. All of those things have profound public health impacts. And if we can frame it that way in terms of clean air, then more people have the space to care. You stir people, though. You, in fact, uh, have been inspirational to so many people. And it all started with you as a high school student leading students for Obama and then becoming part of that administration. Just interested, how did you feel? I mean, crestfallen comes immediately to mind when Donald Trump was elected president of the United States who seemingly didn't care that much, certainly not as much as the Obama administration, I'm not trying to be partisan here, but pretty much conspicuous and obvious, uh, didn't care as much as uh, President Obama did about climate change. Yeah, I mean, I think a really important question is how do you meet people where they are? Um, and we've failed to do that in so many different ways. I think, again, leading on hope, it's not just something that feels good, it's effective. And there's great research coming out of the University of Oklahoma by Dr. Chan Hellman, about the science of hope. 
and how to make people feel hope. And there are a lot of components that you can break down that framework into of showing that there's a destination, showing that there's momentum toward that destination, that endpoint. Um, President Obama was very effective about talking about this hope and change in a way that really stirred people and ignited hope. And one of the ways we've been able to reframe climate is by talking about this zero carbon promised land. That, you know, climate change, a frame that's not really out there is that it's solvable, right? Like if you think about the problem and the source of the problem with our, our system-based and fossil fuels around transportation, industry, electricity, there, there's an endpoint of this zero carbon promised land and the impacts that's going to have on people across the board are going to be profound. And as we get there, the level of um, the ability for the clean energy economy to lift people out of poverty and to improve their quality of life is really profound. I promised I wouldn't get in the weeds with you and I don't want to, but there's new evidence of climate models showing acceleration, actually. Uh, you may have seen this. I'm sure it's been big news, warming due to carbon cycle feedbacks mm -hmm. and those kinds of things and, and more global warming, but also more methane emissions even. Uh, this is the sort of thing that makes people more downspirited and kind of diminishes the hope or at least reduces it. And you say what? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that you face the science head on. And that's why the you know scientists have done such a really good job of establishing the narrative of emergency and urgency. And that's out there. As we respond to that, that I think really underscores the importance and how vital it is that we focus on systemic change versus smaller action that, you know, we don't really have time for ineffective solutions. And so we really have to be looking toward policy, government action, elections and campaigns as the way for us to get ourselves out of this. Well, let me ask you about another tactic, though. About four months ago, uh, Ted Cruz, who was a climate denier, was on the Oprah show, and uh, there were climate activists who were screaming profanities at him and essentially um, confronting him and making people aware of the fact that he was hurting Texas farmers and having a great deal of uh, pain as a result of his denial of climate realities. Um, that kind of tactic, along with the vow of that particular activist group to shut down Park Avenue to shut down everything on Park Avenue. What about those kinds of tactics? Yeah, I mean, those are tactics. They're not the tactics I kind of deploy and and the advocacy I'm doing, but they're out there and and there there can be a role, right? That you know, people who are advocating for things and, and not that these folks are, but in general, kind of the realm of activism has people advocating for things kind of in the center that are pragmatic and like working with the other side all the way out to people who are, you know, establishing themselves as the left flank, which is a really important role to play, right? Because it keeps the center in a reasonable place. Um, ultimately, you know, activists play whatever role makes sense for them. And I think they all have a role to play in like helping us build the conditions that we need in order to create this clean energy economy um, and help provide support to policy folks that are at desks that are trying to get these laws passed. So when you struggle to climb mountains, which you have done magnificently, I mean, ice mountains even, you're kind of expressing a metaphor about what needs to be done. I mean, it's a kind of mountain climbing effort, isn't it, that we're talking about here, scaling a mountain and having the grit and whatever it takes to make it to the top. Yeah, and so I think you're referring to this film Patagonia recently released, uh, or last September, The Scale of Hope. Um, where it documents my experience um, attempting to climb a mountain. And the director will often talk about the fact that, you know, a lot of climate films today focus on a very literal take on climate, especially in the outdoor world of like climber sees glacier melting, comes back to earth, tells everybody glaciers are melting, we need to act on climate. And it's kind of this very literal take. Um, the way they chose to kind of frame climbing and, and my experience in climbing is very much like this experience or metaphor of 
trying to do things that feel impossible and doing them anyway. And that's, I think, a really big part of alpinism for me. You know, I'm pretty mediocre ice climber, uh, especially when- Well, you're somewhere of a newbie though, aren't you? <laughs> Not a newbie, somewhere in between. But, yeah. but, you know, there is this struggle where you feel incredibly inadequate. Uh, some of those mountains, especially where I climb in Alaska, are like intended to make you feel inadequate. There's no way you can look at them, no matter how good of a climber you are, and think I'm- I'm solid. I'm going to do this. It's going to be easy. So I think alpinism kind of lends itself to provide this metaphor of trying to do things that are just really, really hard and doing them anyway. And I think in climate, you know, that's something I take with me all the time. It feels insurmountable, but it really isn't. We've got some questions coming in for you. Let's go to some of them. This is from uh, San Diego. Uh, actually, it's James ba in San Diego who writes, Please discuss how the idea of carbon footprint shifts responsibility onto individuals and away from the petroleum industry. Well, that's right up your line, isn't it? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question. So what you're getting at is actually, so a story that a lot of people don't know is that in the early 2000s, a organization hired uh, the PR firm Ogilvy & Mather, prominent PR firm, and in a $250 million campaign, popularized the idea of the individual carbon footprint. So you have to ask yourself, who was that organization? It was a fossil fuel company. It was British Petroleum, BP, right? BP oil spilts, those people. And so we have to ask ourselves, why did a fossil fuel company want to make everybody focus on greening their lives? Well, the carbon footprint calculator tests actually teach you to do workarounds to assist in base in fossil fuels. Ride your bike to work is also saying avoid our transportation system. Turn off your lights at night is also saying avoid our electricity system. All of these things go into actually working around a system based on fossil fuels and not changing that. So that, for example, if you don't turn on your lights at night, like they tell you, the electricity grid doesn't necessarily get cleaner. That's the idea BP had in mind when they pursued this campaign, because people focus on themselves and on taking on the onus of the climate problem versus getting them better regulated, the oil and gas industry and changing the system. So we really have to be mindful of, again, the urgency and the immediacy of the actions we need to take on climate and whether or not our solutions will match up to those. When it comes to kind of individual action, again, people who have the time, the energy, the resources, and the privilege of being able to green their lives, I commend them, keep doing it. But we really need to focus on systemic change policy in order to truly solve the climate crisis at scale, because the numbers just don't add up otherwise. What do you say to the argument that we need fossil fuels to have a strong economy, that we have to not necessarily be totally dependent on them, we need clean energy as well, but some element, some modicum at least of fossil fuels is necessary? Yeah, I mean, it's transition is the key word here, right? It's this transition, it's a period of time. We also need to ensure that we're not putting people out of work left and right with kind of an indiscriminate nature of like not considering what alternatives and, and services we're going to be providing these people as they as we transition into a clean energy economy because a lot of people's jobs and livelihoods rely on fossil fuels. So we really need to be mindful of those things, but eventually the zero carbon economy that we're looking at, it's going to require everything from solar and wind to um, storage to more transmission being built and and additional uh, R&D, all of these things in order for us to get there. So it's all part of this ongoing process. I remember one of the interviews, I did a number of interviews with former Vice President Gore, and one of the interviews I did with him, he kept talking about all the jobs that would be there for the clean economy, but skeptics keep raising questions. It's saying the jobs aren't necessarily there or they're not going to be there. And you say what? 
I mean, it takes time, right? We, like building a clean, a zero carbon economy, building an entirely new economy takes time. And in that process, there are people who are put out of work and there are also tons of green jobs and that's an amazing opportunity, but it's not a one-to-one -one thing. Meaning a coal miner put out, you know, who's, whose mind shuts down and no longer has that job and that livelihood that sustained their family for generations, they don't necessarily have the solar installation jobs coming to them. It's not one-to-one. -one. And so I think there are opportunities there for us to look at alternative economic structures like universal basic income that could provide quite a bit of benefit to people all over who are experiencing these transitions in our economy as we move forward. Let me go to another question. This is from Los Angeles. Robert wants to know where, and probably a number of people are wondering, but Robert's wondering where you can see the film, The Scale of Hope. Could you tell us a bit about the film? Yeah, so the film was produced by Patagonia. It's about climate climbing, um, my dream of climbing, ice climbing in Alaska, uh, our work to reframe the climate narrative and the fight for systemic change, and then my experience living with bipolar two disorder. So it brings in this mental health narrative. It's available on YouTube for free on Patagonia's YouTube channel. So if you just search Scale of Hope, you can watch the whole thing. Why is Patagonia, they refer to themselves as thieves and... <laughs> <laughs> so the production company that made it is Liars and Thieves, led by director Josh Bones Murphy. And uh, Patagonia works with a lot of different production companies on their films. So that was the one that did that did ours. Here's James from San Diego. Along with increased voter registration, what are the most effective ways to influence policy decisions and shape public opinion about the climate crisis? I love this question. Thank you so much for this question. Uh, so there's one group I recommend everybody uh, join in on, and they're called the Environmental Voter Project or environmentalvoter.org. Now, these people found a way to use cutting edge analytics to identify environmentalists who do not vote. When I heard about this, I didn't believe them. I was like, environmentalists vote. And they showed me the data that they actually don't. A lot of environmentalists don't vote. So they identify them and then they use behavioral science in order to turn them into lifelong voters. It's incredibly simple and yet it's not, which is why we need really good organizations doing this. And so this is a group that are 501c4, nonpartisan, but um, all you have to do is basically remind people that it's election day, remind people an election's coming up, use other tactics that we know turn out voters. You don't even have to persuade people. You don't even have to talk about climate. But in doing so, climate candidates get elected. It's a brilliant strategy and it's the best low hanging fruit. So I highly recommend folks get involved via volunteering or donating to this group in order to have an impact. But I, I believe they are the answer to the climate crisis. Well, I remember when I started out in broadcasting back in the Pleistocene era, there were these uh, focus groups and they would ask them, how much do you care about the environment on a scale of one to 10? And the numbers came out always high. Yes. But then they would ask them, about listening to programs about environmental topics or watching programs about environmental topics. And the interest was not nearly coordinating to what they said they cared about and what they said they were passionate about. There is that chasm, isn't there, that gap? Yeah, yeah, there is. A, I mean, one thing that's really interesting, this is data coming out of the Yale program on climate communications, is that people don't realize the public widely behind climate action. Climate policies are extremely popular in America. Majority of Democrats support climate action. Majority of Republicans support climate action. Now, there's a disparity, right, between where the public is and what's happening in Congress and how many climate deniers are represented in Congress. There's a hugely disproportionate number there. Um, but that difference we have to account for in a lot of different challenges we're seeing in our democracy and our democratic process, which is why I think democracy reform is a fundamental tenet of climate action. 
things like fighting voter suppression, dismantling gerrymandered maps, um, campaign finance reform, registering new voters, all of those things, anything that makes democracy more democratic in America will lend itself to climate action. So forgive me, Molly, you're saying you can really play into those interests and you can indeed engage people and get people to commit. Absolutely. And especially when you frame it in terms of public health, clean air and clean water. That's really what people care about. So if you want to talk to, you know, I talk to people who voted vote very differently from me a lot. And one of the things I find is that when, you know, you say polar bears and the Arctic, they start rolling their eyes about, you know, green hippies. But if you say clean air, clean water, lower the childhood asthma rate in your community, cut pollution down, everybody starts caring. Everybody. What about when you start talking about decarbonization? Do they roll their eyes or do they care? Well, decarbonization is also cutting carbon pollution. That's another way of saying it. So actually, the more we can frame climate in terms of pollution and cutting pollution, the more effective and the more people get on board. Here's a question uh, from a very illustrious person, um, our own Alex, who wants to know, as we transition back to in-person events and conferences, how should event organizations take responsibility for the carbon footprint of their shows? How should climate-focused events approach this? This is from the what we call ex cathedra, the seat of authority, because he puts on the, <laughs> he puts on these events. Yeah, I mean it's a good question, but honestly, at the end of the day, we really need to focus on systemic change, right? So like we can focus on transportation and like the emissions that come from each of us flying. We can also support policies that are going to help decarbonize our transportation sector. This is the most effective way to lower your carbon footprint, your events carbon footprint, your company's carbon footprint is to pursue and push for policy action. Because when things get into our regula regulatory process, that's where you're gonna see sweeping action from the front side or from the, the supply side, rather than the end users who are forced to use the only system they've been given. That includes companies a lot of times or event organizers. You know, you have one electricity grid you're plugging into. So we need to decarbonize our electricity grid. You mentioned uh, flying, and I was just thinking about John Kerry, who leading climate activist decided that he was not going to do these private jets anymore because he'd been criticized. Yes, but, you know, you're talking about climate change, but you're flying in these private jets all over. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Should climate activists, uh, do they have to be non-hypocritical and consistent with, you know, not taking private jets and that sort of thing? You know, I hate the idea of uh, environmental hypocrisy. This is actually, the concept is behind climate guilt. And that's, again, invented by the fossil fuel industry. So we have to remind ourselves that environmentalists are often pushing and spewing fossil fuel propaganda in our own community. And that's something I think we like really need to be mindful of. Anytime somebody's like climate guilting somebody else or accusing them of something they don't like about how they live their life, that's often focusing on them instead of like the fossil fuel industry and how we need to change the system we've been given. And we have very specific tools in which we can change them. And so like, we really need to be focused on systemic change and the climate guilt and climate um, shaming that comes along with that, I believe is pretty ineffective. What about the disproportion sense of, uh, I mean, third world countries, particularly who say the United States has been abusing the climate for so long now and, uh, it's, we're moving forward with technology. We're advancing and we have to do these kinds of things and we want to do these kinds of things. It has to be balanced. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a really important tenet of um, development right now. This is like a very important conversation. Ultimately, like the answer is going to be at a high level that rich companies need to pay. 
And so we're going through a lot of that process and there are a lot of uh, international um, agreements and mechanisms that are being developed in order to more effectively do that for a just transition for everybody. There's hope again in your talk. <laughs> um, here's Kyle who says, as someone who works in systemic change, uh, how do you stay focused on your goal when there are seemingly so many systems that need changing? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really good question. How to stay focused. I don't know that I have the best answer for that because a lot of times I have trouble staying focused. But honestly, it's actually, it can be quite simple. Like decarbonization and electrification are quite simple, right? We have to decarbonize our electricity system and then we have to put as many different things onto our electricity system as possible, like transportation parts of industry that we can. So decarbonize and electrify is like sort of the Bible verse that we can just push. And from that, a lot of other policy can be developed around how to do that effectively. And you also have talked about the electric grids and uh, what needs to be done there as you see it. Well, one aspect of this is uh, transmission that if we can actually get more transmission built and streamline permitting processes, um, then ultimately and like cut down on, you know, community uh, pushback on transmission projects, then ultimately we can actually get a lot more renewable energy online, like immediately. Um, it's, it's a way that we can actually get more renewables online beyond just like having to build them. So I think it's really important. We're focusing on transmission as a fundamental core tenant uh, of environmental policy. And I think that's where everyday people can play a really big role. Transmission projects are very important and vital to us building this zero carbon economy. The more we can support or help streamline those efforts and move them forward, the better. Another question from Los Angeles from Robert. Has your guest had any one-on-one -on -one meetings with prominent climate deniers? If so, could she tell us about these meetings? I, I have met with climate deniers for sure. And what's really interesting is when you talk about pollution and clean air, they're totally on board. They'll support climate policies. You just don't have to call them climate. Just call them policies to cut down pollution in your community so your child can breathe better. This is what's profoundly impactful when we think about the public health narrative here and why we should consider refraining to that more and more. If somebody's talking about the cost of climate action, move it into public health. If they're talking about polar bears, move it into public health. That's where you get people to care, and you help build the climate movement more broadly to a more diverse political organization. But maybe change the language too, though. If they recoil when they hear the word climate, maybe we need another word or to change the semantics somehow. Climate is pollution. Just call it that. I'm fine with that. Yeah. That makes, I mean, makes more sense to call it pollution, actually, in mm -hmm. some respects. I'm also um, interested in, a couple of times we've mentioned the film, and in the film, go into your own family experience in Topaz, Utah, with um, the internment camps, uh, Japanese Americans uh, taken, citizens actually taken and put in those camps during the Second World War with Germany and Japan and Italy. And how has this affected your environmental views or your, for that matter, your struggles uh, politically? Yeah. So yeah, growing up, I'd always known that the story of my family um, included that my father's parents, entire family on that side uh, during World War II was um, relocate, forced relocation, put onto trains and lived in the Utah desert for, for a couple of years um, and just for being Japanese American. And to me, that underscored the importance of policy and the impacts of policy and elections and campaigns on people's everyday lives. Like, the fact that a policy can change the entire fabric of a country, what people's lives look like on a day-to-day -day level. Like there is 
no denying the power of policy to be used in really good ways and really evil ways. And so I think that sort of had some influence in me eventually going into politics, um, which was not a space I usually would have seen myself, but I just knew that if we wanted to create systemic change um, and improve society for people, then the answer lied in policy and to get policy, you need elections. So the answer lied in elections. And that's really influenced why I think the answer to fighting climate change is electing pro-climate candidates. How do you get people out to vote, though? I mean, particularly, they have to care and they have to have that emotional sense that you talked about and a stake in what's being voted for vis-a-vis policy. But you have to get them out and stir them. I mean, we have such disproportionate numbers more than so many democracies of people just not voting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that it's this is the theme of everything is people can't act until they feel something. We need to make them feel something, right? And again, when we're leading on climate, on fear, guilt, and shame, and doom and gloom, then we can't ask ourselves why people aren't acting. We took away their ability to act the second we started shoving those narratives down their throats. Ultimately, when we lead with hope, people feel that there's space for them to get involved. They feel empowered. They see the opportunity. They see the momentum. They want to get involved. Elections are part of that. And that's one of the reasons President Obama's uh, his framing was so effective on hope and change because he led with hope and he made people realize that not only can the future be better, which is the definition of optimism, but it's the belief in people's agency to change it. Well, look what Stacey Abrams has done. I mean, it's almost exemplary, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Getting people- Absolutely. I mean, and you have to look at the biggest climate progress we've had ever was the Inflation Reduction Act a few months ago. And how we got there was that two years before in the past election, uh, community organizers on the ground in Georgia were registering people to vote, mainly people of color who had never been given a voice. And in giving them a voice, they changed the state that people said had no chance of changing and elected two climate candidates who then became the march and the victory on the Inflation Reduction Act and gave us the votes we needed in order to barely get that passed. And the future our children will live in will look different in the best ways. It'll look better because of this sweeping law. So the the climate elections nexus, I think, is one we cannot overlook. Another question for you from Sarah in Baltimore, who says, looking at what fossil fuels pay for, should we think about their use as a national security issue? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, climate is a national security issue for so many different reasons. Fossil fuels are a fundamental part of that. Um, That's why, again, we have to underscore the importance of a transition here. There's a lot of nuance we can get into when we dive into the policy details around these things, but ultimately it's a transition. It's a multi-step process and we need to continue moving ourselves forward there. How do you think we can move forward more with electric cars? I mean, particularly given the fact that most people... (laughs) just want the cars that they want and they don't necessarily want electric cars. Yeah, and I, I think again, that underscores the a couple of things, one policy and two cost. So um, policies like those that have been passed in California and Washington that will likely be copied elsewhere around changing what it's going to look like for a manufacturer to produce a vehicle in the year 2035. Um, and, and the fact that there are gonna be new standards, regulations and expectations that those are gonna be electric, that's helping us move forward. There's also the importance of lowering the cost of electric vehicles in America. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act helps with that through incentives, but we need a, a lot more to make electric vehicles the affordable option for everyday Americans. Well, a lot of people are emotional and stirred by their pocketbook. Uh, remember James Carville's famous statement, uh, it's the economy stupid. Um, how do you make people more economically invested in climate change or 
in doing something about pollution other than the fact that, you know, it may affect the asthma of children and all those kind of important things that you've outlined, their pocketbook. How do you appeal to your pocketbook yeah. directly? Well, I'm going to bring it back to what I always bring it back to, which is public health, because public health impacts have profound financial impacts. And again, this is how we find we can reach people. We can also talk about climate in terms of people's like everyday livelihood, which is really important. But, um, you know, if you if you are sick all the time because of pollution or any sort of like chronic illness that can come from pollution, uh, what can happen is that you have missed school days, your children have missed school days, you have missed work days, you have a lot less financial security and predictability. And that can lead to profound uh, lifelong financial impacts for you and your family. Even premature death, you can look at from a financial perspective, which is that children lose their breadwinner. That has a really profound impact on families. The fact that children don't have a parent to provide for them because of pollution, because of the air quality in their community, like uh, it couldn't be a more preventable thing. When we frame it that way, people pay attention. And we're back to framing and how important that is. Uh, you would love to have everyone have access to the climate movement, literally the way that say, Abraham Kendi has made uh, everybody potentially want to be anti-racist or identify with anti-racism. Um, but you're talking about scale here, aren't you? Uh, let's at least approach that for a moment and find out what your thoughts are. We have to look at climate in terms of access. I think that is a really important thing, and, and specifically climate action. Like the climate movement needs to be fighting for everybody, and we need to give everybody access into it to fight for everybody. The environmental movement, we have to come to terms with the fact that it has not always done that. It has often fought for a specific group of people at the expense of a lot of other people. And I think there is... A, a bit of a racial insensitivity we can look at with the carbon footprint and the fact that environmentalists have invested so much time and energy into greening their lives while communities of color next door were dying because they couldn't breathe or access healthy air right this is a reckoning so in order to for us to effectively create a movement it has to be one that fights for everybody from the start and that everybody has access to it and one aspect of this is also like this kind of an idea of environmental gatekeeping, which kind of goes along with this idea of environmental hypocrisy, is that we're creating these barriers for entry that people can't be a part of the climate movement unless they own an electric vehicle or are vegan or have taken these actions to green their lives. And if they do it anyway, are you know at risk of being called hypocrites when a lot of people don't have access to making those changes in their lives because there's a lot of privilege that goes along with sustainable living. Um, so that's this kind of dual aspect of access in people's lives. Like everybody needs access into it. And when they're in it, it needs to fight for everybody. That's the shaming part too. I mean, you know, yeah. somebody made to feel badly for being carnivorous or liking a steak, uh, as opposed to wanting to be a vegan or a vegetarian. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's a real challenge, I think, for environmentalists, because there are a lot of people who are out there preaching and uh, pretty sanctimonious about it. Absolutely. And is, you know, going vegetarian for climate something that people should do if they want to? Absolutely. It's great. But again, if you shame people who aren't doing that, then that's God, that's the number one way to lose voters in the Midwest. Like, let's be real about that. So the, the political pragmatism of it is just not an intelligent move in terms of our framing and our narrative. Um, and two, people who do eat meat still want to help the climate movement. Do we tell them they can't? Do we tell them we don't want them? That's not an effective way to build a movement. No, you're we being very pragmatic. That's, yeah. that, that's the American philosophy. Um, you also say at one point, uh, and actually you've said a number of points, 
you have to get out of your comfort zone. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting because I think comfort zone is is unique for everybody. It, it varies so much. And so for me, there are times in my life, you know, I live with bipolar two disorder, you know, mental health challenges are a huge core, you know, part of my identity and experience. And so there are times when getting out of my comfort zone was like forcing myself to go to a climate conference because I was like scared to interact with people. And, and now there are times when, again, that changes so much, it's so relative that getting out of my comfort zone is forcing myself to climb an ice wall in Alaska, because that's where, again, it's like so relative what that looks like. So it looks different for everybody. But I think the point is that wherever that line is for you, to push yourself beyond that. And again, if that's getting out of the house that day, because you're having a hard day and like you're scared to leave the house because you just don't want to get out that's pushing yourself outside your comfort zone all the way to people who are, you know, jumping off cliffs with parachutes. What is the public most least understood uh, or given to understand and least educated about when it comes to bipolar disorder in your judgment? I mean, I'm thinking about something like Homeland, you know, where you had a portrayal of one of the major figures uh, played by Claire Danes as having both bipolar. There are a lot of things that have come through popular culture and through films that yeah. kind of distort what the real day-to-day -day issues are for those of you who suffer with it. Or Absolutely. So many different aspects. I actually, I've seen a couple of really good depictions of bipolar disorder for like the first time recently, but yeah, most of them are just garbage. Um, but, you know, there is a lot of struggle and dysfunction that was part of my life before I was treated. I think one thing people do, which is really interesting. I once walked into a psychiatrist's office and I'd already been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I'd long accepted my diagnosis. And I said, you know, I have bipolar disorder. My name is Molly. Here's like the rundown. And she said, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. You have bipolar disorder. Don't be ashamed. And I was like, oh yeah, I, I don't, I'm not. That's okay. Yeah. I'm not ashamed. And she kept going and she was like, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. So again, if you look at the work of George Lakoff on framing, one, she's basically inducing the very idea she's trying to deny, right? Because I walked in there not feeling shame, not thinking about shame, and all of a sudden I'm leaving thinking maybe I'm supposed to be feeling shame because she keeps talking about it. She like created this idea in this new neural pathway in my brain. The other aspect of that is that it didn't really leave space for me to say what I really felt, which is that I'm actually quite proud of all the things in my life I've been able and lucky enough to do. Bipolar disorder is the thing I'm most proud of in life. Um, and it's because it's given me a lot of, uh, a lot of gifts. And one of those things is kind of this ambition to live at the extremes. And so, you know, I liked politics, but I always wanted to work at the white house. And I feel like bipolar disorder gave me that ability, empowered me in that way. And I liked hiking, but I always thought the most intense thing, the most extreme thing you could do is climb ice in Alaska and bipolar disorder sort of like gave me this power, um, and push to do that. So it's been the source of all of my suffering, but it's been the fuel of all of my success. And I wouldn't give it up if I could. It's a wonderful Treated. little allegorical tale, though, of a psychiatrist making you feel shame by telling you don't feel shame. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's called the white bear problem. And George Lakoff talks often about this, this idea of, um, you know, when scientists told subjects not to think about a white bear, they're constantly thinking out about, about a white bear when they weren't previously. You it's very hard to suppress a thought. You actually induce the very thought you're telling people not to think about. And this is why this is really important in climate is because we can't respond to anti-climate narratives and like set the record straight. We often think that's what we're doing. We really need to reframe it entirely. And another good example of that is, um, you know, during the healthcare fight, they said that Obamacare costs too much. 
And rather than President Obama saying, no, it does not cost too much. So still wiring healthcare in cost, he said healthcare is a human right, which does not an include an association with cost because you don't put a cost on a human right. Same thing with what my psychiatrist was doing, right? She didn't reframe. She was responding to an anti, uh, a very anti-mental health frame. I hope you found another psychiatrist. <laughs> I did. <laughs> okay. Here's another question from Los Angeles. For the climate deniers, what drives them to be so passionate about their point of view? Is there a hidden agenda? And you mentioned the petroleum industry, but since you've talked to climate deniers, what do you think really they're all about? You know, it's really interesting. There aren't that many of them. Honestly, statistically, if you look at it, there are like almost none. Well, particularly if you uh, use pollution rather than climate, as you said earlier, right? Yeah. Exactly. But I mean, there's been a very disproportionate representation of climate deniers in media that's made it almost seem like there's parody. Like, you know, CNN would often put the climate uh, scientists next to a climate denier as talking heads next to each other and then say, go and have a debate, like a sports style debate. It was really problematic because it created this uh, overrepresentation that doesn't actually exist. There are very few climate deniers out there. There's a disproportionate number in Congress. The problem is actually a salience challenge, which is that, like you've mentioned, people care about climate and the environment, but they don't rank it as like very high on their list of other issues. It's a salience challenge. And that's one thing we need to address by reframing this through public health. Because again, they might put polar bears toward the bottom of their list of things they care about, but clean air for their children that goes way up higher. Yeah, what about all those deplorables that Hillary Clinton talked about, though? I mean, you know, she saw them as being uh, insensitive when it came to issues like we're talking about here with climate change. Well, and I think we really need to put that on her. Like, people cannot speak that way about everyday Americans who are doing their best and trying to get by. I think this is really important. This is part of the elitism that's gone into the environmental movement, is that it's turned off so many people, and I don't blame them for being turned off. I don't blame people for the fact that they haven't felt heard, understood, seen. They felt deeply alienated by this. I mean, imagine if you're not an environmentalist, if you don't identify as being an environmentalist, what do people think of environmentalists? It's often not the best perception. That's a reckoning we have to come to terms with. And that's kind of what the work I think of the climate movement is trying to fix and course correct for right now. Do you have any thoughts about what seems to be unfortunate now in terms of uh, those who are trying to hit the grids through terrorist acts? Uh, I mean, actually shutting down the grids and so forth. I'd be curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's one of our greatest national security threats and vulnerabilities is our grid. Um, there's just incredible um, possibility and potential for huge amount of destruction, both economic, infrastructure, everything. So our grid really needs to be modernized. Um, and that's part of, I think like clean energy can help us do that. We can help modernize our electric grid, but it's, it's an ongoing process that we have to address through policy at scale. What other policies rise to the top for you? I mean, in terms of the struggle and fight that's up ahead, uh, and, and it's even more immediate than long-term. Well, um, you mean existing policies or policies Ex we need? Existing policies that either need to be... <laughs> Uh, tactically changed or ameliorated in some way uh, that, that really are almost calling for uh, a complete, um, call it even a revolutionary change. 
Yeah, carbon pollution standards for new and existing power plants. That's a really big one that yeah. we can address through regulation with the Clean Air Act. That was what the Clean Power Plan was. Um, that can actually be done via executive action. That's like an open opportunity here for us to be able to use those authorities. Um, regulating, so directly regulating uh, power plants, I think is one of the prominent ones, I would say. Also, you know, policies that are going to lower the cost for electric vehicles, help people electrify their homes. I mean, that's the one individual action where if you are lucky enough to own a home and can afford it, electrifying your home is a very important thing we can do because that's one area that's harder to address through policy. And when you were working for the Obama administration, did you make a kind of triage list of things that rose to the top as opposed to those things that could be maybe tended to later on? Yeah, I mean, I think there's <laughs> the climate action plan he created and that was released was really like the kitchen sink. It addressed every aspect of climate that could be addressed through executive action, um, like everything, everything from methane to hydrofluorocarbons to um, power plants to electric vehicles, fuel efficiency standards, like all of these different aspects of the economy that we could figure out, we could address through executive action. That's what we we're doing. And they're so all interrelated in many ways, aren't completely they? Completely yeah. interrelated. Yeah. What's the what's the common thread? Oftentimes it's fossil fuels, right? If we can look at it, yeah. that's the problem behind climate, which seems so obvious. And yet when people talk about, um, you know, all these different things they're doing to green their lives, that's actually not a focus on the fossil fuel industry often. It's focused on each other. That's really like, it, it, there's a very common thread. If you look at the greenhouse gas emissions pie in the US, where emissions are coming from, it's about a third from electricity, a third from transportation, and a third from industry. There's a common thread there that we can address through policy. Well, when gas prices went up, uh, President Biden went to Saudi Arabia, and a lot of people were very upset about him, you know, giving fist uh, handshake with... Uh, uh, someone who was responsible for the death of Adam Khashoggi. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it appeared from, from I think, any non-political point of view that the president was concerned about gas prices, therefore had to go to Saudi Arabia and try to get Saudi Arabia back online where they were supporting us. And now we've got this major battle going on between Ukraine and Russia, and Russia has been like a gas station to the world. And so fossil fuels play a central role in terms of global politics. There's no denying it. And our president, and for that matter, all presidents, really, I even include Barack Obama here, um, have been very mindful of the fact that when gas prices go up, people feel something needs to be done. We need to do whatever has to be done politically. Absolutely. And that kind of underscores, like, again, everyday life, everyday people, how they're impacted. This is part of that. And that kind of goes into this broader question of how do you make people feel something and create the conditions for um, human emotion that lend itself to systemic change. And again, the more we can lead with frames around hope, opportunity, momentum, and feasibility, the more people get on board. So for people to see progress in their everyday lives, like gas prices going down, where they can breathe again and the boots off their neck, then that can lend itself toward more a feeling, a sense of hope that the future can be better, that uh, people are more engaged in order to commit to bigger fights. And you mentioned momentum. How do you get momentum going? Well, a big part of that is actually looking at the momentum that exists and just highlighting it. So there's, you know, when you fight climate change, you unleash incredible technological innovation. You put people back to work. You create jobs. You invest in communities that have been left behind. I've seen very little economic development. All of these really good things happen 
for society. So when we when, can share. I'm sorry. sorry? I, no, I just I was struck by you talking about investments because you have to get the capitalists on board here too, don't you? It's part of it, yeah. right? And and we're not actually talking about like restructuring the economy. We're talking about transition to transitioning to economy that's um, based in clean energy. And that's going to be a really big, exciting thing for people to see. And and capitalists and, and a lot of different aspects of our economy are going to play a role in that. You've been giving advice to, well, corporations and to some people in the free enterprise system. Uh, a lot of them are very receptive to what you have to say, but some of them are quite the opposite, right? So what do you do to, to twist arms or to convince or to persuade? You start talking about children's health and the kinds of things you've been talking about here with me? Yeah, you know, there's there's not actually as much resistance as people think on climate. Um, it's really coming from the industry, like the fossil fuel industry. But beyond that, like everyday people, companies, they all want a role to play and they won't want to help and be a part of the solution. Um, so that's certainly something I see in my work as a consultant through systemic impact strategies is like a lot of people come to us and they just say, we want to help. What can we do? What should we do? Help us create that roadmap. And that's what we do. Um, so I think more broadly, again, it goes with this idea of hope and momentum and opportunity. Um, all of these amazing, uh, solutions exist. We just need to deploy them. Deploying hope. That sounds like, <laughs> that sounds like something out of a military strategy handbook that there must be some armaments involved too. Extend that metaphor. You know, I honestly think that might have been a because we we use the term hope in so many different ways. I think that might have been one of the titles we considered. I believe that was probably on the list for the film that when Patagonia was brainstorming a title. I believe that was on there actually. Yeah, no, I uh, actually recently uh, did an interview where I was on the other end of being interviewed, and I said the one thing that gives me hope are idealists like you um, and, and those who are passionately dedicated and feel they can bring about substantive change and are bringing about changes. Uh, the mountain to climb here is systemic change. And that's exactly. been your mountain, really, and where you have planted that. Remember, in fact, in, in the film, there are times when one of your mentors was saying, you're putting your instrument in too strong. You need to do it in a balanced way. And I think what I'm hearing from you is the importance of balance in all this, too. You can't push it on people. You can't shove it on people. Yeah, I mean, you have to create intrinsic motivation like with anything else. Um, and again, this is like part of psychology. You have to make people be aware of their goodness. So one thing we've done, this is like a really bad part of like parenting is when when people, it's a really con big concern when like, you know, children often have a lot of energy and they can sometimes get um, in trouble sometimes for that. And a really important thing to do is to remind them of their goodness. In times they're acting out, in times they're having trouble, is to say you're a good kid having a hard time. <laughs> it's Dr. Becky Kennedy, what she recommends from Columbia about how to deal with children who are um, in conflict. And what's really interesting is we've actually taken that when it comes to climate and we've made people internalize their badness, right? We've said, look at the problem we've created, look what we've done. Humans are terrible. We are terrible. Now, that's just not good for people's mental health in general, but one of the reasons that's problematic is that people have to be reminded of their goodness in order to take action. If you tell somebody they're bad, they're either going to feel bad or they're going to tell you to F off. Um, and, and that's not, those aren't the two things we need for people to do to take action on climate, right? You have to remind them of their innate goodness and of their ability to take action and create change. That's what I believe people can do. 
And that's a belief that is based to some extent, it seems to me, on faith and on optimism. And maybe mm-hmm. we need to perhaps make a distinction between optimism and faith. Uh, or optimism Absolutely. and hope, or optimism and hope, really. Yeah. And and psychology defines that, right, as optimism is the belief the future can be better, but hope is your belief in your ability to change it. That's the important thing, because a lot of people can be optimistic and they just hope for the best. You see this every election. People just hope for the best. They hope it goes the way they want. But hope is your belief that, like, that can actually be different, that you can impact that. And that's where people start registering people to vote, talking to their friends and family, making calls, volunteering with orgs like the Environmental Voter Project, those types of actions that actually create that systemic change in the end. But you're also pragmatic, right? That Absolutely. Can, that could be very different than believing that you can do these kinds of things. You have to see results. You have to codify Policy them. people have to be pragmatic. Like you, you will never meet a purist policy person um, because they they understand the conditions in which you need to, to get things done and to make change. And um, in order to do that, it's never going to be perfect, um, but it will help us get closer and closer. Where are we now? I mean, if you're talking about getting closer and closer, maybe think of this geometrically. Where do you see us on a kind of linear line where we need to be as opposed to where we are? Um, I don't, I don't know that I'm qualified to be honest, to, to speak to like where we are on the line, but I can say that there's a lot more momentum than people realize. And we're making a lot more progress than people ever thought possible. And that's why we need everybody's help to do more of that. And you would say what to people who are sort of wishy-washy about this or don't know that they should get on board or don't necessarily feel that emotional surge to get on board? I would honestly actually ask them, what what can I do differently? What, how have we failed you? How has the environmental movement failed you? Enough of people telling you, you don't care enough, you're not doing enough. Like, I'd like to understand that. So that's thing one is we like need to listen to folks like that. And two, for people to just know that there's not only, they're not only welcome in the climate movement, there's a place that's been waiting for them from the start. And psychology plays such a central role in your thinking. So can you psychologically make people feel better about the climate movement just by listening to them as you kind of indicated? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many core tenants that I mean, a lot of it comes from actually developmental psychology and how somebody feels seen and heard, which is like how you raise children in order for us to better understand how to more effectively serve the public here. And that's really, really important is not to alienate people, is not to judge people, is not to impose shame or guilt or any any just sort of like negative um, affect onto people who are doing their best and struggling to get by, we really need to lift up people and recognize what role they can play and help them play it. Well, your dedication is inspiring and also your sense of what people are capable of doing and your belief in people. And I sure hope you're right about a lot of those things. Um, (laughs) Time will tell, but you know, just the struggle that goes on and the struggle that you've uh, dedicated yourself to is indeed extraordinarily impressive. Um, What's next for you? Another mountain to climb? I will be heading back to Alaska in April to climb an adjacent mountain from the one we climbed in the film. So it'll be another ice climb uh, on the Ruth Gorge. But you were also climbing in Montana, weren't you? 
Yes. Yeah. That's where I'm based. I, I climb in an area called Highlight Canyon where the waterfalls freeze. Uh, it has really special conditions that enable the waterfalls to freeze in the winter and uh, a lot of ice climbers here climb them. When you get to the top in Alaska, can you see Russia from there? Like uh, Sarah Palin? <laughs> so close, so close. <laughs> well, I certainly have been very pleased and delighted with this interview and I thank you for the time and uh, onward, onward and especially upward. And thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michael. Great to be here with you. Thank you, everyone. And let me just remind you that we've been talking with uh, Molly Kawahata, and I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast live today and to our future listeners. Also, invite those of you who haven't yet joined our growing community of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny to do so by going to graymatter.show. I want to thank our indispensable Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and Malachi, and a special bountiful thanks to this episode's guest, Molly Kawahata. For everybody's here, I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.